Welcome to our Studio 2 family. Oh, Get yeah. it? Get it? I love I'm, it. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Love that, Avi. Have you investigated your family tree or used one of those at-home DNA ancestry kits? Americans, they are spending billions of dollars digging into their roots. So today we're looking at why. Why do people feel connected to distant relatives that lived hundreds of years ago? What kind of privacy issues are raised by widespread commercial DNA testing? Lots of questions. Yeah, and we want to hear your stories, too. Have you made any surprising discoveries about your family, good or bad? Mm -hmm. uh, have you taken one of those at-home mail-in test kits? Email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Already have some comments rolling in. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. And by the way, this whole segment was inspired by a call from a past show, so we'll, we'll tell you more about that later. Also later, I'm going to share my own family story that I learned from a cousin I just met. So That's cool. That's a tease. And I'm learning so much about you, Avi. <laughs> it's really, really cool. And in just a few minutes, we're learning about new sickle cell disease therapies just approved. One of them uses the gene editing technology CRISPR for the first time. But first, Avi, we're finally wrapping up the budget saga here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, you might not even be aware that <laughs> The Pennsylvania budget for the year that we're in, the fiscal mm -hmm. year that we're in right now, was not completed, even though it's supposed to be done over the summer. Um, there were still some things to be worked out between Republicans and Democrats. But last night, Josh Shapiro signed a $45.45 billion um, spending bill. They tightened up. They tied up all the loose ends. Um, they had already sort of there was code bills that needed to be mm -hmm. passed to sort of appropriate the money, even though the budget had been signed in a sort of technical sense already. Complicated Harrisburg stuff, but basically there was still some horse trading going on, including over money allocated to um, a voucher-style program mm -hmm. that allows businesses and individuals to, to give money to private schools in exchange for a tax break. And, and some of they, they allocated more money toward that, which is what Republicans wanted. Democrats got some transparency stuff. Um, you can read more about it online, but basically the point is finally in December we're talking about a completed budget. Yeah, and, and Josh Shapiro, our governor, said, we proved that we can work together, that we can deliver real and common sense solutions. And I'm like, it took y'all a long time to get it done. Uh, can, I, can I say but something hey, in his it defense? It is done. It in, is done. In, in yes. Harrisburg's defense, which is that oftentimes when a new governor comes in, that yeah, first budget true. is very, very contentious. That's true. That's and true. in fact, it was probably worse in Tom Wolf's first budget that that led to a huge stalemate then again the, the economy was worse then so there was yeah, there was more yeah. sort of like belt tightening that needed to be done which always leads to more conflict but again not uncommon not uncommon yeah. but I want to say that you know there's going to be money allocated to school facilities you know districts can get grants there there's some criminal justice money as well there's some incentives for teachers young people to become teachers they'll get some um, money to help them while they're getting school, mm -hmm. you know, in school. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of education. Yeah, stuff a lot of education there. stuff. Also, boost to nine one one centers thanks to a to a thirty cent 
phone line tax. So uh, some improvements there. We've seen some problems at 911 centers. Phone line um, But not everybody. I know. Not everybody's happy. Um, and guess what, Avi? February 2024. That's crazy. Governor Josh Shapiro will deliver <laughs> his months. address. And we will start the process Yay. all over again. Um, but meanwhile, in Harrisburg, they're also busy doing other really important work, Cherry. And, and I want um, you to highlight that right yes, now. Yes. Um, a Pennsylvania State House of Representatives passed their uh, resolution on Wednesday recognizing 2023 as the Taylor Swift era. Go figure, so right? a year is an era. I know that this is like a colloquialism <laughs> now. It's an the era, era but, but I, I, a year being an era is still very confusing to yes. me. Anyways, go anyway, ahead. Anyway, it was Taylor Swift's 34th birthday on Wednesday. The Happy birthday. The resolution recognizes that from her humble beginnings as a teenage artist on that Christmas tree farm in Berks <laughs> County, Taylor Swift is the epitome of what it means to be a Pennsylvania. Sure. The, a Pennsylvanian, excuse me. They recognize. Even though she lives in Tennessee. Okay. I, I, exactly. But Swift this year was named a Time Magazine 2023 Person of the Year. They acknowledged her positive impact on Pennsylvania's economy, voter registration numbers, consumer protections. Mm -hmm. You know, because she did her Swifties took on Ticketmaster. Remember that? Power to the Swifties. Power to the Swifties and pro labor practices. So they were showing some Taylor Swift L O V. Well, it wasn't all L-O-V-E. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that This part. resolution <laughs> only passed 103 to 100 in the state house. Fact, fact. It was like a partisan battle somehow. I think it was like a joking partisan battle. Most of the Republicans opposed this, um, many pointing out that she indeed moved to Tennessee and remains a resident of Tennessee. Um, uh <laughs> But, but I'm a big Taylor Swift fan, actually. Really, and people are really probably going to look up those hundred people who voted against this. Yeah. I don't know. They're I mean, standing I, in the breach right now. They're taking you know. on a very powerful force, the Swifties. Um, but no, congratulations to Pennsylvanian, Berks County native, Taylor Swift. And happy this, belated birthday. And happy belated birthday. Um, and I, I always say this. You're welcome on Studio 2 anytime, Miss <laughs> Swift. Of course. Uh, um, before we uh, go to our newsmaker, want to draw our attention to a story in the Inquirer today about how much... People spend on their pets during the holiday seasons. Uh, They uh, drew out some statistics. I think it was from a financial company, SoFi. Nearly 90% of U.S. pet Mm. parents spend more than usual on their fur babies during the holiday season. Fur babies. Um, I love that You like that? With 70% buying their pets gifts, according to a recent survey. Um, This is actually something I don't do for my pet that often. Maybe I feel a little bad now. You got to step your game up. I guess so. But, but but I don't. Hmm. What what CJ do you think needs? <laughs> need, CJ needs a bubble coat or something. <laughs> She's a cat. She's an indoor cat. <laughs> She's gonna overheat. What are so you slippers, doing? I don't know. What are you doing to my cat? <laughs> slippers? You know they use oh, their feet shoe? to grip. They can't. You can't put slippers on okay, a cat. Okay. All right. A nice collar. She hates collars. Pillow. Again, Ugh. this is what makes it. She will immediately take a collar. I think it's very hard to shop for a pet. Yeah. They really just want food and your love. So I think keep giving them that. The good food. But shout out to Jilly Rose Greg. That's the Greg family dog. <laughs> she's a black lab. And by the way, she's on my Christmas list. What are you getting for her? Um, is she listening? Probably, Don't spoil the surprise. I know. I'm not going to say she's going to be surprised. She okay. likes to dress up, though. I'll put that on there. Boy, this was a silly news <laughs> roundup. Okay, let's do something let's far more something serious now. Really serious. And um, there was big news last week for the 100,000 people suffering from sickle cell disease in this country. The FDA 
approved two new gene therapies, and one of the treatments, Casgevy, uses CRISPR technology. This is the first time the gene editing treatment has been approved to be used in humans. Now, while physicians and patients celebrated the news, there are still a lot of barriers to getting these new therapies, the cost and the intense medical care that they require. And there are an estimated 20 million people, Avi, worldwide, mostly of African descent with sickle cell. The big question is, will they have access to these advances? Joining us to talk more about these new therapies and what they mean for patients living with sickle cell disease is Karen Musanuru, a cardiologist and geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania. Doctor, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much, Abby, Cherry. It's wonderful to be on. And we're so happy to have you. Uh, first, remind folks, sickle cell disease, what are the outcomes for patients uh, with that ailment using the old treatments that we already have? It's a horrible disease. The old treatments work a little bit, but don't work that well. So the fundamental problem is a protein that's not working properly. It causes the red blood cells that carry oxygen around the body to become deformed, hmm. to form crescent or sickle shapes. That's why it's called sickle cell disease. And when you have these sickle cells, they're fragile, they break. And so the blood level falls, you get anemia, uh, you're fatigued, you have low energy. And then worse than that, these abnormal cells, these deformed cells can pack up and actually block blood vessels, block capillaries that feed different parts of the body. And so you can get stroke, you can get mm. vision problems. And worst of all, you can get excruciating pain episodes, the worst pain you could possibly imagine. Wow. And there's not much you can do medically to treat that. Wow. And so this CRISPR technology is now FDA approved to treat sickle cell disease. It's a huge deal. Explain to it us is. why and how CRISPR will work. So the reason that this is a big deal, it's for two reasons, actually. One, it's an incredible step forward for sickle cell disease patients. This is potentially a one and done therapy. This is not something you take over and over again, like pills or shots. This is a single treatment that definitively addresses the problem. And so the patients who have received this treatment in clinical trials so far, they've had a dramatic response. They've gone from having pain crises many times a year in and out of the hospital to having nothing at all as if they don't have any disease. So that's it. That's one big deal. The other big deal, as you mentioned, is CRISPR. We've all heard about CRISPR and how it promises to create new therapies for a whole variety of diseases, but this is the first to the finish line, sickle cell disease, as you noted, approved by the FDA last week. It's a great accomplishment. It's a milestone in modern medicine, and it is a sign of things to come. We're going to have similar treatments for a whole variety of diseases going forward. Talk a little bit more about the administration of this therapy, because as you noted, it's not really simple. It's not like take a pill. Um, how right. does it work for the patient, um, and, and how does that affect how we try to scale this thing up? Absolutely. So even though this is a near miraculous accomplishment of modern medicine, it's going to be transformative for many patients' lives. It, it is not a trivial thing. It is not an easy thing. It requires taking blood stem cells out of the body. And so that takes a few weeks to collect those cells and then editing them, as we say, with CRISPR, actually making the modifications to fix the problem outside of the body. But then you have to put those fixed cells back into the body. And unfortunately, once you've taken the cells out, 
the body replaces the cells that were taken out, and then there's no room for the cells to go back in. So then a patient has to receive chemotherapy to clear out all the blood stem cells that are in the body to make room for the edited cells that are then put into the body. So we're talking chemotherapy, typically two months in the hospital, immunocompromised, can't be near anyone, um, a lot of issues that arise from that. So it's a pretty intense, grueling course in the hospital. And then even after they come out of the hospital and they've recovered, there's still many checkups have to go back to the clinic uh, a number of times over the next year or so. So this is not a one-time thing in the sense that you get a, an injection or an infusion and then, you know, same day you're done and you don't have to think about it again. This is actually a pretty intense thing. And, you know, that sounds expensive to me. That And yeah. the FDA has I read that the FDA expects only about 20,000 patients of the 100,000 Americans afflicted yeah. with sickle cell to be eligible for this new treatment, what are the challenges and obstacles to making this more widely available? Well, the first is, as you know, the expense. So the company that has developed this therapy and is now going to make it available is charging $2.2 million, which I know sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But if you think about the frequent hospitalizations and the suffering that these patients experience over a lifetime, it's actually you can make a good argument for it being cost effective, but it's still a very high price tag that has to be paid basically all up front by an insurance company or a payer. And so that's going to be an issue. If you don't have good medical insurance that it's not going to pay for this, it's not an option for you. The other issue is because this is such an intense regimen, it involves hospitalization, it involves specialist care. You need trained hematologists who know how to administer the procedure and take care of the patients. There's just going to be a bottleneck in terms of how many people get and get treated at any one time. And so the number you said, it sounds right, it's about 20,000 out of the 100,000 who are gonna be able to access this therapy over the coming years. Is there a technical uh, or technological advancement on the horizon that could eliminate some of those hurdles? Or is this going to be the way that we administer these types of therapies for the foreseeable future? Yeah, great question, Avi. So this is just the beginning. That That's the nice part of this. This is yeah. just the beginning, or maybe the end of the beginning, to paraphrase Churchill. Um, <laughs> it's a sign of things to come, but it, things are going to get much, much better. I feel very confident in saying that. And I think the next big step forward for patients with sickle cell disease is the prospect that instead of having to do this whole rigmarole of taking cells out and editing them and putting them back in and doing chemotherapy, is is the the concept of being able to deliver CRISPR directly into the body mm. with a single infusion and fix the problem from within. And then it becomes more of a same-day procedure. And this will be not only a great benefit to patients here in the United States who otherwise you know, wouldn't have access to this therapy, it would be much less expensive or much easier to go through, but this is going to be you know, absolutely transformative for patients outside the United States. 20 million people estimated around the world, many of them in Africa, in South Asia, who otherwise do not have access to advanced technology, who don't have the ability to yeah. you know, be hospitalized for months and so forth. So the idea that you can just go to the clinic, receive a one-time treatment, same day, and then go home and yeah. the disease will effectively be fixed, that is going to be utterly transformational for and all patients with sickle cell disease. And as we wrap up, we only have about 20 seconds left. I, I want to talk about other treatments because HIV, cholesterol, there's other things that could be treated thanks to CRISPR. What's, what's the future look Absolutely. like? And you have about 15 seconds. Yeah. So let me just go down the laundry list. Heart disease, cancer, rare genetic disorders, inborn errors of metabolism, 
uh, HIV, as you mentioned, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So wow. this is just a watershed moment. Wow, for modern a, a, a bold future, and we do hope we get to see it. Uh, that is Kieran Musanuru, cardiologist and geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today on Studio Two. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, our fascination with tracing our family roots. Stick with us. Welcome back to Studio Two. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Cherry, I know you remember this. Mm-hmm. Months ago, we did a show about television history, unrelated topic. And a listener named Keith Mason called in to tell us about how he found his long lost father. I found my father for the first time walking, talking as a contestant on To Tell the Truth, hmm. October 1961. Wow. That led me to find That's out. That's amazing. I found out about a sociopathic life, seven marriages, six wives, eight other siblings. My grandfather was a reporter murdered by a dirty cop in Texas in 49. That call still gives me goosebumps. That was crazy. That was so crazy. Now, most family histories, Avi, are not that dramatic. But afterward, Keith said, why don't you do a show about all the unusual ways people have discovered new family? Millions of people these days are finding their roots with DNA DNA testing, ancestry websites, and more. It's as popular as gardening. And we said, Keith... You're mm-hmm, right. This mm-hmm. is a fascinating topic. Today, we have more ways to dig into our own past. So what are we learning and what do we want to know? Our next guest has some answers. Her name is Libby Copeland. She is a freelance writer and the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. Libby joins us today to talk about our American obsession with family history. Libby, welcome to Studio Two. Oh, thanks so much. And we want to hear from you, friends. Did you find any dark secrets about your family? Did the results of a DNA test surprise you? Email us right now at studio2 at whyy.org, or you can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. Libby, I want to start here and just talk about the industry of DNA test kits and websites like Ancestry.com. When did this stuff first emerge onto the the scene and what has its growth been like over the last five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, in a word, meteoric. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, This is an industry that's been around since about 2000. um, But uh, if you looked at it back then, you wouldn't recognize it as the same thing that exists today. The bulk of the growth has really taken place over the last 10 to 12 years Um, And that's been because of technological developments that have made it easier for companies to tell you about your recent genetic past and connect you with relatives who, um, you know, have tested in the same database whose names you might not know, but it turns out that that's a second cousin once removed. Mm -hmm. Um, And as the um, databases have grown larger and the companies have gotten better, um, the databases have also grown and companies have put a lot of money into advertising. Um, and we are at over 40 million folks who've taken wow. a what they call a recreational DNA test kit. And most of those folks are um, in, in the United States. It's like a snowball effect. The more people that use yes. it, the more interesting the yeah. tool becomes. It's so fascinating. Go ahead, Cherry. And, and so, Libby, got to ask you, for folks who may not know, how does the DNA testing typically work and what types of information does it provide you with access to? 
Sure. So depending on the company that you go with, you're either spitting into a tube or you're swabbing your cheek with something that looks a little like a Q-tip. And then you're sending it away to the company. And the company is doing some analysis, which could take some weeks. And when they get back to you, there's two key pieces of information that they're giving you. One is um, a sense of where your um, ancestors came from on both sides of your family, all the branches, um, anywhere between 500 and 1,000 years ago. So if you're like me, you'll have a lot of different places lighting up on the map um, for where you came from. And then the other piece of it is folks who are related to you in the database. So other consumers who actually have matching genetic segments. Um, And that's where um, a lot of the really interesting uh, breakthroughs and revelations, surprises um, come in because you, you wind up seeing who your closest relatives are, um, you know, in this long list. I want to bring in a comment here from Eunice who says, I am totally obsessed and have such rich, interesting stories on each side of my family. I often share my findings on social media. The lineage of my paternal family history from Mississippi was detailed in a 2016 feature film called The Free State of Jones. Matthew McConaughey portrayed my fourth great-grandfather. Wow. So I'll lead that into a question, Libby Copeland. Why are we so drawn to these stories? Why are these products so popular? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the particular DNA of Americans, if you will. Um, yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of a lot of Americans um, did come from someplace else. Um, unless you're Indigenous American, you know, there was some point in time when your ancestors came over. Um, the powers of um, assimilation, especially during the course of the 20th century, meant that a lot of Americans, and particularly white Americans, there's been sort of uh, work looking at this, um, ha- shed their um, their culture practices, their religion, their language, their foods, and to become more, quote unquote, American. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what you have now is a lot of Americans kind of looking up and saying, um, like, I don't actually know where my great grandparents came from. I don't even know my grandparents, you know, like, I don't know their names. Um, Mm -hmm. There's such a sense of disconnection. So you see people kind of wanting to understand that um, there's a search for, I don't know, authenticity might be the word, this idea that um, you're not just American, you're also this, right? Um, And wanting to connect with your roots. And we have a caller on the line right now. Sue hails from Princeton, um, who says you should think through testing. Sue, you have a story. What's your question or comment? Hi there. Uh, Interesting topic. Um, So my husband was... uh, contacted by his half-brother who learned about my husband through DNA testing. It was the half-brother who did the testing. And so then my husband was like, well, what? that's weird. Should I talk to my father about this? His mother had since passed away. And his father was in his 90s. And we talked about it. We decided no. If his father had wanted him to know... His father would have told him. Yep. And so we decided to tell the half-brother, we are not going to connect with you until the father passes away. And That's after so the father passes away, then you make the connection. And it was interesting connection. Um, but I'm just saying, think it through before yeah. you yeah. think, oh, this person's going to be so excited to learn about me. That's such yeah. an interesting perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Sue, you, for Sue. that uh, story. And, and that leads to my other question, sort of, what should you be thinking about when you, because I've been really uh, nervous about doing one of these and I have not done it. And so I, I want you to kind of walk us through some of the thought process that and the considerations before you just send your DNA off and, I, and, the, and the psychological aspects of it. 
like Sue sure. was talking about. Sure, yeah. I mean, that call was such a poignant example of, of the sort of logistics and the emotional considerations that take place. Um, in my book, The Lost Family, I spent a lot of time sort of talking to people about how they became their own, um, basically their own bioethicists, right? You're, you're in a situation that is completely new to your family. It's never happened before. And you have to make a decision about what is the ethical thing to do. Um, do you tell your mom, for instance, mm. that she was donor conceived and she doesn't know it? right? That yeah. she's actually not related to the man she thinks of as her father. Mm. What What is the burden of information on you? And how does it implicate often older generations that, you know, made, made decisions about what to reveal and what to conceal based on stigmas and taboos that may not be as culturally, culturally relevant right now, but they are still very strong. Those, those emotions accompanying certain secrets um, are very strong. So, you know, shame, guilt, embarrassment, um, you know, there are people, for instance, who placed their child for adoption and never told their husbands or their children after they went on to have a family, right? And, and that omission um, may be... Um, maybe central to keeping that marriage intact, yeah. right? Because imagine the, tr the sense of uh, betrayal that um, husband and children could feel if they learned something about their mother that, that she never told them. Not, not, that the, not that the act itself was bad, but, that the, but the failure to tell, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we're learning in this moment is just the impact of family secrets and how much delicacy and care and compassion we have to bring, particularly with these intergenerational... Um, you know, conversation. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing I tell people is there's no way to know what you're going to discover before you test. And once you learn it, you can't undo it. Yep. So make mm -hmm. sure you're in a place where you're sort of ready to, to open that box and know that it may not be something that necessarily impacts you, but it could be really impactful for a sibling. For instance, you find out your sibling is a half sibling yep. and their mm -hmm. father is someone else, right? Yep. Um, there's so many situations like this where um, we don't realize how interconnected our lives are and how much we depend on each other and how, uh, you know, how many complications there can be um, until you sort of take technology and, um, you know, use it to examine the past. <laughs> yeah, we're kicking open some doors that yes. our ancestors yeah. wanted yes. to keep closed. Yes, yes, yes. I want to bring in, you mentioned adoption. I wanted to keep, uh, bring in a caller now. This is Beth on line one who has a story about this very thing. Uh, Beth, what's your question or comment? You're on studio too. Hi. So um, I've been doing ancestry for a long time to do, just to keep track of like family tree, genealogy and stuff. I was adopted as an infant and I was doing you know, my adopted family, my family's genealogy and everything. And um, for fun, when my husband did his DNA, I did mine just for fun. And I did not open my matches just for that reason. You can do your DNA, you know, kind of see the fun little map of where your DNA is from and all that. But without opening matches, because it's, I feel like it's not my place. Yeah. My birth mother's probably in like her early 60s. It's not my place to like, blow up her life, possibly her children's lives, you know, her family's life. So I just never opened that up, yeah. you know, and that's an option. It is that's a Pandora so, box. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that, that's amazing, though, that you've you have that information, uh, Beth, and you've made the choice there to put it to the side. And I'm curious, uh, bringing back in Libby Copeland now, um, how is this technology, how can it be used by people to connect with biological parents um, if they were adopted or perhaps 
um, were conceived through sperm donors or egg donors. How is this technology possibly used to reveal some of those connections? Yeah, this has been one of the most transformative um, pieces of how DNA, recreational DNA testing is playing out. Um, just 10, 15 years ago, if you, for instance, um, had been adoption adopted and the adoption was closed and you live in a state where you can't access your original birth certificate, so you don't know the names of your birth parents, you might need to hire a private investigator to in an attempt to find your birth parents if you wanted to identify them and maybe connect with them before they passed. Um, and even then, you could pay a great deal of money and work on that for a decade and never succeed. Mm. And now people are finding out sometimes in as little as days and even hours um, because they take a test, they get their results, and they see right away, oh my goodness, there's a half-sister just sitting at the top of my match list. Um, so basically, you know, there's it, 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 there's a sort of political and civil rights debate around whether um, adoptees should be able to access their original birth certificates, and that's a separate thing, but in many ways, DNA testing has effectively allowed people to make an end run around that and discover that information um, and um, in some ways make that question of the birth certificate almost like running to catch up with where the technology is taking us with the um, matter of sperm donation. Um, there's no such thing as an anonymous sperm donor anymore. That simply doesn't exist. It doesn't matter if you um, donated your sperm in 1975, 25 times, as you know, a man I interviewed spoke with, and you know, was promised um, anonymity. And um, you know, he has now 23 children that he knows of. You know, oh some of them gosh. come to Thanksgiving. Like it, it doesn't matter what contracts were signed, um, because because they're moot. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my gosh. I, I want to. You zoom out of it, and that and that is, um, I, I mean, because you go it's into this, yeah. yeah, it's mind blowing there. But I and I want to shift a bit and zoom out a bit because um, one of the things that I think um, makes people a little bit nervous taking these DNA tests is that you could pull out something very painful from your past, especially you know, um, you know, I'm an African American woman. I think about you know, slavery and, and, and opening that Pandora's box. And I want to play this, this clip, um, in season two, um, this, of this episode of finding your roots rapper Nas encounters a bill of sale for his enslaved ancestor. And I want you to take a listen to, to that. This is the bill of sale for your third great grandmother, a receipt for a human being, $830. They paid $830 for my great-great-great-grandma. I got more than that in my pocket right now. See, this is painful now. This is like, to see that, it's like, that, that hurts. Take a look at that guy. That is the white man who owned your ancestors. This is the face my ancestors looked at every day. Every day. The eyes they looked at. Now I'm looking into their world, what they saw. Unfortunately, the house burned down in 1963. And today, it's nothing but a forest. No, I'm just thinking about buying that land. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd say it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of a push and pull here, right? Which is that sometimes connecting to the broader national history um, can help us make sense of our own lives. But the, the downside is that it can be very painful. How are people dealing yeah. with these discoveries. Yeah, incre incredibly painful. Um, 
I mean, and I think especially for certain, you know, groups like African-Americans for whom it is so difficult to trace your family history in the paper records, because if you descended from people who were enslaved, um, if you're looking at, say, the federal census before 1870, you're trying to trace an ancestor, um, that person disappears when they're um, in enslavement because they become a tick mark in a box. In other words, they're not named, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you follow <laughs> the journey of a family when those people are not even named? And, and you know, they're often broken up. Um, children are taking the names of their enslavers. So it's, it's incredibly difficult to trace. And I, I spent a good deal of time interviewing um, genealogists from African-American community and other communities that are marginalized or have less good records about the, the yin-yang, the push-pull of this, right? The, the, um, the desire to know the yeah. truth and the truth about history, right? To look at it full in the face and say, this is truly what happened. Um, this, is the, this, is, this is my America, right? This is my story of America. And also this um, sense of, of, you know, wanting to also shield yourself from, from not really truly not knowing what you're going to find, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a sense of um, wanting to kind of protect yourself at least until you have the stamina and the emotional energy to kind of manage it. And not everyone wants to dig into their genealogy. And that's, that's, that's totally valid. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, African-American genealogists I interviewed who said DNA testing transformed my capacity to understand the past. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I <laughs> that was able to trace back even to a particular region in a particular country in Africa to a particular people that I came from and connect up with a present day cousin. So that I mean, that's absolutely amazing. But then there were others who said, you know, for privacy reasons, for um, a whole host of reasons, I don't even want to go there. You know, yeah. I'll stick with paper record and talking to family members. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned the word privacy. Yep. Um, yep. We have an email from Rob who said 23andMe admitted hackers access DNA data of 7 million users. Another reason not to send your DNA out. I want you to talk about some of the broader implications of handing over your DNA to some of these companies. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I first started reporting this, it was 2017 and it all seemed quite theoretical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not anymore. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's issues with, um, with hacks, there's issues with questions around what would happen if even non. Um, you know, genetic information becomes public. I mean, it's not just your genetic information that's sensitive in there. Um, it's also your name, right? And where you come from and who you're related to, all that all that stuff. Um, and then there's also implications involving law enforcement access in the course of trying to solve cases. Um, some of the databases have um, made it themselves accessible to, um, to law enforcement for solving cold cases. So there's all these questions around, you know, where to draw the line. And as somebody who is in three days, databases now. Um, mm. I think about that a lot. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I was sort of somewhat hesitant to test in the beginning, but you know, my, both my parents were already in there and my brother and I thought, all right, well, our DNA is already out there. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm already in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think the question is if you don't know what the future is going to bring, like we don't know what we don't know. We don't mm -hmm. know how this could be used. We don't know how it could be leaked. We don't know how potentially, um, you know, a bad actor or a foreign um, country, for instance, or, you know, somebody could get a hold of that information and it could be catastrophic. But at the same time, um, there's this lure to the, um, 
the magic of being able to, as I see it, crack open your cells and read the past. And I think that's that calculation, not everyone's going to draw it in the same place. But for me, it came down on the side of, of deep, deep curiosity and wanting to know. Um, but that's not to say that I may not um, regret that decision that I and 40 million other people yeah. <laughs> have yeah, made, totally. you know, to kind of open ourselves up to, um, to, to what we can't imagine. It is really hard to resist. Once you know the possibility is out there, it's just so hard to resist. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about this, Libby Copeland. Uh, we don't, but I just want to thank you so much because the implications of this Broad. are sprawling. Yeah. We had a ton of comments and calls today, and we do appreciate all the participation. Sorry if we couldn't get to you. Um, but want to thank you one more time. That is Libby oh. Copeland. Thanks for joining thank us on both. Studio Two. Thanks so much. Uh, Libby is the author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are. And speaking of upending, Cherry. Yes. Um, we're going to dig we're, into your family history. I mean, history. this is a big deal this because is, this, is, this is this is personal. This it is, is great. Um, it's a fascinating conversation with an investigative journalist coming up about my own family history. Before we go to break, I also want to shout out uh, Keith Mason again for mm-hmm. the inspiration for this segment. He actually wrote a book about his family. It's called Please Stand Up if you want to check it out. All right, Keith Shout Mason. out, Keith. Thank you for that call. It's one that I will never forget That's on right. Studio 2. <laughs> Studio 2. Stick with us. Hey, used to issue out a warning she'd say Billy don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hey. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, folks, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. So, all right, we spent time talking about family history this hour. And Avi, one thing that I learned about you since we started hosting this show, your family is from, of all places, Utah? Utah. People are always surprised if I tell them this. Yes, my mom and her whole side of the family is from Utah. And how in the world did they end up in Utah? Well, here's the story. My mom's family was in the clothing business. Mm-hmm. They ran a store in downtown Salt Lake City called Errant's Doorway to Fashion. Ooh. Very successful business. But I learned something recently about its origins. When my great-grandparents got into the fur and clothing business, they very likely raised the capital they needed by taking out a mortgage on property that they owned in the South Dakota prairie. South Dakota. South Dakota. That's where that comes into the equation. And I learned all of this because there's a new book Mm. out uh, from a major publisher. This is like a real deal book, and it's about my family. It's called The Cost of Free Land, and it's by an award-winning investigative journalist named Mm. Rebecca Claren. And Rebecca is, uh, let's just roll the tape. We have to acknowledge up front, we're cousins. Third cousins. We're third cousins. We're meeting right now. We've never met before. It's so nice to meet you. It is lovely to meet you. And what's crazy about this book is that it is, at least in the beginning, about the closest ancestors that we share in common, our great-great-grandparents. Exactly. Harry Sinekin is like the original protagonist in this book. 
He's born in the Pale of Settlement, Western Russian Empire, basically. And only, it, Jews were constrained. The Tsarina, Catherine, smushes them, says the Jews, you know, first of all, Jews will have certain constraints on what they can do and not do economically, and they will have to live within this certain area, which, as I write in my book, they did not call a reservation. They mm. called the Pale of Settlement. So uh, Harry Sinekin is one of these Jews. And so, yeah, he's living in Odessa with his dad. This and is Ukraine. This yeah. is in Ukraine. And there's a terrible pogrom in 1881. And I assume his dad dies in the pogrom. No one, we have no stories. We don't know anything about his mm. dad's existence after the pogrom. But Harry, as you know from reading the book, is beaten to within an inch of his life. They break every single one of Harry's ribs. They break all the mirrors in the house. They they set fire to the house. And Harry, for the rest of his life, has like terrible asthma and a hernia and, um, and really erratic behavior. Harry, our great-great-grandfather, escapes with, within an inch of his life. And eventually, like many Jews living in the Pale of Settlement, finds his way to America. But what makes his story a little bit different is that he does not settle permanently in a big East Coast city. Harry ends up in the Dakotas. Not a ton of Jews around, but some Jews. Like as you a thousand Jews are homesteaders in the Dakotas in the early 1900s. And Harry and, and his wife eventually, Fega Etka, are trying to scratch out an existence on this land. It is harsh land. It seems like in the beginning, Harry's basically living like in a cave type thing. Yeah, he's dug totally into, living in a cave. Digging into, dug into a hill. I mean, like just sort of barely um, subsisting. Because these people, let's be honest, never truly made it as ranchers. Definitely not. Like they weren't awesome at it. And it, I'm not <laughs> saying I'm weren't. not blaming them. There was a lot of you know, conditions conspired against them in many ways, and there was drought and all that. I mean, whatever. But by owning the land, and you follow this trail through through generations, they were able to leverage that to fund other business ventures, to move to big cities. I mean, it's really, I think it's such an American story in that way. Yeah. It's its capitalism. I mean, I'm not an economist, but it seems like a very foundational piece of American capitalism. At the end of the day, this chunk of land that they, they get very little sort of direct economic value out of becomes the foundation, I think you call it like the platform shoes for their success in America, their their ability to move up the class ladder. I mean, it's 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 that's the part of the book to me that was like so eye opening. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. So let's talk about this chunk of land that Harry Sinekin yes ends up on in South Dakota, living in a cave. Where did that land come from? This land is part of land that had been by tr federal treaty in 1851 reserved for the Lakota nation. So the Lakota were part of a large group of native nations that were living on the plains. And at the same time, the United States has this new state of California, and it has all these natural resources, and the railroads want to create a railroad linking California to the rest of the country. And so they work with the government to say, we need to clear the plains. Yeah, you made that promise. 
let's break that promise because we need to put a railroad line through that land that you just reserved for uh, the Lakota. So promises made become promises broken. And between 1851 and 1908, when our family sows their first crop, by my research, the United States either takes or steals 98% of the land that it had re- that the that the Lakota had reserved in 1851 and that happens repeatedly so it's this huge chunk of land and our family gets a a small chunk of it and this is key for free for free we get a 160 acre homestead which under the law you had 3 or 5 years depending on the time of when you get the land uh, that's yours to keep if you can do what's called proving up during that time period. You had to build a piece of property. Yep. You had to build on the, uh, so you build a claim shack um, and you had to turn the wild prairie into farmland. And so they go in for cattle pretty quick. Yeah. They become ranchers and they do okay. And we're not trying to call out our family to say that they were uniquely bad. It's really the opposite. It's to say that they were participants in a system in which many people were participants. This could be your family story. This could be any family story. Absolutely. I remember a cousin of ours being really, she said, did they murder anyone? Like she was nervous about what I would find. And absolutely not. They didn't murder anyone. They were just living their lives. And I'm so curious about the way so many of us in America come from families, and let's face it, living here today, we are just blithely uh, participants in a system that is oppressing others at great benefit to ourselves. There is now this question of, like, what do we do? There is a cynical side of me that says, that's human history, people taking land and power from each other, and you can't put all the genies back in all the boxes but you take a different position that we can start to try to do something. So, so what is that? Well, I love that you have that skepticism and cynicism because I think it's really real and it's a real question. What I would say is, yeah, that's true. We, we, that is somewhat human. Humans make mistakes and we always will, but the harm is ongoing, right? It's not like these are harms that happened a really long time ago and now we're just learning about them. The harm is still here, okay? So we're still benefiting and actively, and the harm is still happening. The legacy of those policies has left a real harm. Of the 10 poorest counties in the country, four of them are in the Dakotas on Lakota reservations. The question of what do we do here? For me, early on, before this was even a book, I was writing a profile about an indigenous judge for the nation who runs her courtroom in Northern California with a real sense of how do you ground justice in tradition and culture. And she said to me, her name's Judge Abby Avenanti, and she said, if you're going to look at this history, you have to study the Jews. What do the Jews say about how to respond to a harm, even one you didn't commit, but one you benefited from? And that led me to do several years of study with my rabbi. What? Okay, sorry. 20 minutes later, I'm telling you, <laughs> I've started. <laughs> I um, I started a fund called the Hey Sapa Recovery Fund uh, that is a part of 
the Indian Land Tenure Foundation, which is an organization that's been around for 30 years, helping Native nations buy back their land, get their land back. And I use the $1.1 million of how much we got in mortgages as our fundraising goal. So, Basically to take the money that was extracted from the land and replace it. Exactly. Now, you spin this back around, this entire concept, and you say, wait a second. Do the people of Ukraine owe us something? I mean, the Germans certainly are paying Jews who survived the Holocaust. I know, arguably, nothing that not enough, yeah. but they do. I think like how like I guess the question is like how much do you broaden this right on a societal level because most people I think are going to be able to claim some sort of historical benefit but just as many people will be able to claim some sort of historical detriment some mm-hmm. wrong done to them I mean we and how could. do you put how do you put it all right you know what I mean that's the thing I'm still struggling with Judge Abby I've talked to her about this I think her point is you can only take responsibility for what is yours to take responsibility for. And she says, we are here to be good ancestors. That is our job when we are alive, is to be a good ancestor, to not pass down harm and hurt for your grandchildren and their children to deal with. How do you be a good ancestor today to stop pain and conflict in the future? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It would be awesome if Ukraine did something for us because of what happened to our great-great-grandfather. And I suppose that's a conversation that that I hope someone in Ukraine writes a book about. Yeah. Um, but that is not mine to hold. Mm. I want to add a few things after that conversation, Cherry. One is that Rebecca was very hesitant to talk about the Hesapa Recovery Fund because mm-hmm. that's not the central theme of the book mm-hmm. itself. And she didn't want to center that. Uh, it was me who wanted to know more about that. Yeah. So I'll take the hit there. Um, the book also follows the story of a man named Joseph Whitebull, who was a, a leader in the Lakota Nation and his descendants. So it's not just our family. It's sort of two families. Two side, parallel families. Yeah, side by side. I'll also note that because of this, I learned that Rebecca had been a uh, she'd been interviewed on Fresh Air oh, years very ago cool. for a Double different story. <laughs> uh, my cousin's been on Fresh Air. And I had clearly, no idea. Journalism runs in the family. Clearly. So there you go. Clearly. Thanks for letting me share that. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. And I feel like I know you a little bit more, Avi. Thank you, Jerry. Nice. Good job. That is our show for today. For more of Studio 2, follow WHYY on all social platforms and download us wherever you get your pods. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's show. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Have a great weekend.